0: Well, good morning. My name is Randy. I'm one of the elders here at Fort William Baptist Church. And as uh, I just want to add, uh, as Bill has just uh, mentioned that Brad is away, our pastor Brad uh, not is away on a study leave. It's just been a real pleasure to have him on the elders board together working in unison and just seeing his love and affection grow for Fort William Baptist Church. That's been a real pleasure to us. Of course, it's it's been a pleasure to have Shana and the kids. And uh, I just want to thank you for welcoming welcoming them and uh, bringing them into your lives and caring for them and supporting them. We're going to be looking at a passage this morning from uh, one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, the book of Ephesians is uh, just fall, it's in the New Testament. It follows the book of Galatians. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and it's found on page 977. So this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is Paul speaking. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word that... It will change us. Thank you for your Spirit's work among us, dwelling in our hearts to change us and to become more like Christ. Father, we come eagerly this morning with eager hearts, with hungry hearts, wanting you to change us. Father, it is our desperate need that um, we would live lives that your Scriptures have called us to live, and we think this morning, especially on this idea of peace and unity. God, would you? Uh, would you make it happen among us? Would you, whatever, whatever peace and unity there is, Father, would you build upon it? Would you help it grow? And so we would ask this morning as we hear this word that you would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's no doubt when you start reading through the Bible that one of the themes that come up is this comes up is this idea of peace. The Apostle Paul has this kind of... A, Uh, A marvelous thing that he does, this pattern that he does in all his letters that he has written to all the churches that he was a missionary to along the Mediterranean. Every time he writes to them, there's this introduction, and he says, peace to you. He does it with the Roman church, the Corinthian church, the Philippian church, many, many letters, and and even in this letter that we're studying this morning to the book of the, uh, to the Ephesian church. And he says, peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is true that that statement became a, a common Christian greeting. But it's more than that. It, 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 it carries a profound truth. And when Paul writes his letters, it's almost like right at the beginning, he wants to cover them or cloak them with this whole idea of peace. And that has a profound effect upon, um, when we think of the idea of peace, it has a, a great impact on how we live our Christian lives together. And, and what we do together is Fort William Baptist Church, and the text that we 're going to be looking at today says that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and we 're going to look at three ways in which we do that. The first is to ground ourselves in the foundation of all peace. The second is by understanding who our brothers and sisters are in Christ, and then by uniting together um, in a common mission as peacemakers so we seek unity and peace by grounding ourselves, by understanding our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then by uniting together as peacemakers. So first, let's look at grounding ourselves in the foundation of all peace. When the writers of the New Testament record the story of Jesus 2,000 years ago, one of the main themes that comes to the fore, uh, this thing that just pops up is this idea of peace. Part of the unresolved tension that we, we see in the Old Testament is that the Old Testament leaves, with, leaves us with this unresolved peace. The prophet Isaiah, when he was writing in the midst of the carnage of Israel's sin and rebellion against God, he, he casts his eyes forward to a future day when peace would come. He reveals these kind of desperate circumstances of his day and then depicts a future day. Just listen to what he says in Isaiah 32. He says, for, he's, he's talking about Israel here. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. So he's, he's looking at Israel and saying these places, the palace, the city, the hill, the watchtower, they're deserted and forsaken, left to the animals. But then he says this will happen until a certain day comes. He says this will happen until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Then, there will dwell, then justice will dwell in the land, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. So Isaiah makes this depiction. There is forsakenness and desolation. He said, but that will last until the Spirit is poured out from on high. A certain time comes, and then there's peace. Well, the New Testament recordings tell us that that day arrived at the first coming in Jesus. Jesus. There's all these events that happen at the first coming of Jesus. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And just before he ascended, what happened? Well, he instructed his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the answer of this promise to Isaiah. The Spirit would be poured out. And so after his ascension, Jesus took the ruling seat at the right hand of the Father. The Father gives him the Spirit, and then he dispenses it. Christ pours the spirit out from on high. He dispenses his spirit at Pentecost and all the subsequent mini-pentecosts that Luke records for us in his book called "The Acts of the Apostles." And these are one-time dispensations of the spirit that signaled that the day of peace had arrived. It's a major significance for the, that those events. It's how to read those events. If you look at the Bible, the the Spirit of God has all kinds of functions. He has his work at at the creation of the world. And then in the Old Testament, you can see him uh, assigning special gifts to people at certain times. And then as New Testament believers, we know that the Spirit indwells us. But this specific act of pouring out the Spirit of God, this specific act of pouring out the Spirit of God at Pentecost was signaling that the day of peace had come. And you notice how Isaiah tied in the idea of righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace would come together, the righteousness that Christ provides, and then there's peace. And so this pouring out of the Spirit from on high is sometimes referred to as the farewell gift of peace from Jesus. We can further see how important this idea of peace is. As Luke begins his gospel, recording the life and events of Jesus, he tells the story of John the Baptist. And John was a man whose mission it was to point to the coming of Jesus, saying that the Messiah had come. But Luke also tells us near the time of John's birth, John's father, Zechariah, was given a vision about John and his mission, which also included a vision of Christ. So you have Zechariah, uh, you have John's birth coming up, and Zechariah is given a vision of, of both John and what Christ would do. And what Luke records for us in uh, chapter 1, verse 67 is what Christ would do when he came. And he says that Jesus would guide our feet in the way of peace. So when you think of the life and events of Christ, what is he doing? Well, he's guiding our feet in the way of peace. And so one way of looking at his whole ministry is that it's one of peace. Furthermore, it's, it's, it's very significant that after rising from the dead, Jesus appeared to some of his disciples and what did he say? I mean he could have said lots of things. But John records for us in his gospel that three times he looked at his disciples and said, Peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. And so he conveyed peace. And so we have this 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 before Jesus comes we have this unresolved tension. Uh, Isaiah is looking forward and there is no peace, but a day of peace is promised. And then we can summarize all of Jesus' ministry ministry as one of peace. And then he rises from the dead declaring, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. He ascends to the Father and dispenses the Spirit, kind of capping the whole thing off, saying that the day of peace has arrived. And so this thing that we call Christianity can can be explained as Christ bringing peace. But we must make a qualification here because... Our society is is obsessed with finding peace, and so we have some challenges. And one of the challenges is is that there's this constant stream or onslaught of ideas flowing into our minds, vying for influence upon it, vying to influence you about what what peace is and where to find it. And we're always listening to someone in the paper or TV programming, at work, on a blog or uh, whatever social media you're involved in, and all these voices are projecting an idea of peace. So that's one challenge. Another challenge is that we live in a highly individualistic society. And the most common way by far to think of peace is peace within me. That's tranquility in my thoughts or the absence of anxiety or disquietness. The majority of the time, peace is being cast in that way. Tranquility within the inner person. And all these voices are projecting this to you. The question before is, is that what Paul is talking about? Is he talking about the, the, emotive collapse, the collapse of the emotive state of the individualistic mind? What is Jesus talking about when he's talking about bringing peace? And so what I would ask you to do this morning is take this idea of peace within me, or individualistic peace, or emotional peace, and just, just set it on a shelf for a minute and don't look at it. And, and consider something else. In the New Testament, there is one main word for peace. And it is used abundantly. It's used many, many, many times. And almost on all occurrences, it's concerned with one kind of peace directed in two ways. One kind of peace directed in two ways. Peace with God or peace with others. It's relational peace. It's one kind of peace. It's relational peace. Peace with God or peace with others. And the main of which is peace with God. And so that's the qualification we must make. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, he said, peace be with you. Or you have Christmas decorations, and you pull them out, and it says, peace on earth. Drawn from the shepherd's encounter with angelic beings, declaring that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this peace had come. But what does it mean? So listen to what Paul says. Just before our our passage that we're looking at in Ephesians, Paul has this, he, he has this these statements about what peace is. And so just just hear from from the book of Ephesians. Paul says this, And you were dead in in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is who we were. And and Paul says, but remember this, that at, at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So notice the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here. People who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, rebelling against God, breaking his commandments, not having God in their thoughts, dead in that state, but now in Christ, reconciled to God through the cross. That is the peace that Christ preached. Christ brought peace between man and God who were once at enmity. And that is the biblical understanding. That is what Isaiah was talking about. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's what Paul was talking about. That Christ, or being in Christ, as Paul says, through his perfect life, uh, living a perfect life on our behalf and his perfect sacrifice, dying for us since he has reconciled us, us, to, reconciled us to God. And that we, through the instrument of faith, appropriate Christ's work for us, and we gain peace with God. Jesus said to the woman in Luke chapter 7, verse 50, and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you, go in peace. And Jesus said to woman, to the woman in Luke chapter 8, verse 48, and he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Hostility between us and God, broken. From our side, Paul says that we were haters of God, and from God's side, under his wrath. And now that hostility has been broken. You are at peace with God. Two warring factions brought together. That is the primary idea of peace. Now, keeping that primary idea at the forefront of your mind, now take that inner peace back off the shelf for a second and look at it. Last Sunday when I was here, um, my soul was disquieted. I, I I was off. And I don't know if it was fear or maybe I was slightly depressed, but during that time, I I, I always knew that this vertical peace between God and me was resolved. The emotive state of our minds will wax and wane, but the enmity between God and us is resolved. Christ has completed that work on our behalf and has given us peace as a gift. You are at peace with God. Now, you can understand how radically different that is compared to what you're being asked to do in society. I worked for a, a company for 33 years that saw itself as progressive, and I can't tell you how many times I was made to sit in a room and close my eyes to find peace. And these, this was all done under varying varying circumstances and uh, or opposing systems and steps and programs, just varying worldviews. And, of course, the, that so-called peace didn't last too long. It um, usually lasted about the time I went from the training room back to my office, and then the Spite talk and the power struggle, the enmity, the stress, it all kicked back in. These are kind of temporary band-aids and cosmetic fixes while we have this large looming problem that we are at enmity with God. We are trying to solve the symptoms while we have this looming, deeply spiritual problem. And so we try some system or some program that will cure me, And Christianity, again, is so so different. It's so radically different. It's not saying that your peace is from a program or a system or a set of steps, some system isolated from God, that, that does not even have God in its thoughts. But our peace is found in a person. Our peace is found in a person. If you want peace, you cry out to a person. Paul says, God is our peace. And yes, I know that the Bible has a lot to say about tranquility of our thoughts. There's good hymns that is well with my soul. I'm I'm not discounting that whatsoever. But the main, the main, the main way that the Bible talks about peace is peace with God. And the main consequence of that is not necessarily the tranquility of our souls, which is it is true that that is there. But the main consequence of our peace with God is actually peace with others. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to now. But if you're not there this morning, if you're just investigating Christianity or just contemplating it, or now that I'm talking about it, you're thinking about it, I would plead with you to consider Christ. He is the resolution of peace required between you and God. And that is the greatest Greatest, greatest peace that you will have. And in God himself is found the foundation for all of the peace. So we've been looking at grounding ourselves in the foundation of peace. And Paul says we want to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we're going to turn our attention to how we do that when we, as we see our brothers and sisters for who they are. And when we do that, we will be led into unity and peace with them. Take a look again at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul says, therefore, live in unity and peace. And we know when we hear the word therefore, we've got to ask what it's there for. Well, Paul has just said something and on the basis of that, he's asking us to live in unity and peace. So what did he just say? Well, one of the interesting things about the book of Ephesians, it kind of mirrors the book of Romans. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, it has 16 chapters. And in the first 11 chapters, Paul lays out this grand and glorious plan of redemption that God has. And then, it, then, it, then in chapter 12, in verse 1, it kind of switches gears and it says, "Therefore," basically it says, therefore, and the next Uh, from chapters 12 to 16 have all this practical information about what to do with this glorious gospel and the book of ephesians is kind of laid out the same way there's only six chapters but the first three chapters paul is giving us this marvelous understanding of the gospel and then at chapter 4 verse 1 he says therefore live in unity and peace and so the question for us is what what is he saying there well paul gives us a, a smattering of statements in the first three chapters that depict who our brothers and sisters are in Christ. And what he says, on the basis, basis of these depictions, live at unity with one another. So listen to how the Apostle Paul depicts your fellow brothers and sisters. I'll give, give you an overview. Just, just hold back from looking up these verses and just hear them presented together. Ephesians 1, chapter 3, they have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's astonishing. Think of your fellow brother as one who has given every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verse 4. God shows them in the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless. God has already made them holy and blameless in Christ. Their sins are forgiven. They are righteous in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 5. Out of love, God predestined them for adoption. They have God's love. God loved them so much he took them out of this family and plunked them down into this family. Chapter 1, verse 6, God blessed them in the beloved. They have God's blessing upon them. They are not under God's curse. Christ took the curse for them. Chapter 1, verse 7, God redeemed them by the blood of Christ. God bought them. They are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to God. Chapter 1, verse 8, God God lavished his grace upon them. He lavished his grace upon them. What a wonderful statement. Chapter 1, verse 8, God gave them wisdom and insight to know his will and his eternal plan. God gave them spiritual eyes to see the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 13, God gave them his own spirit to dwell in them. They have the resources to change, to work through things. God is at work in their lives. His own spirit dwells in them. When they were dead in their trespasses and sins, God made them alive together in Christ. They're alive from the dead. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul has this kind of all-encompassing, glorious statement. He said, God did all this to show them the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards them in Christ Jesus. They are people who have this. And so Paul goes to great lengths in the first three chapters of Ephesians to tell us what God has done and who he has made our brothers and sisters to be. And then he says, go therefore, live in peace and unity. And so we can talk about them that way. We can think about them that way. And we can treat them that way because all of these things are true. But are these the kind of thoughts that we always have about our brothers and sisters? But those you differ in opinion with or those you've had a conflict with or maybe somebody, someone you presently have a disagreement with? Are these your kind of go-to thoughts? It's so easily, easy to think bad thoughts of one another or speak ill of one another or treat one another poorly. But God is saying something different. He's saying, we're obligated to think this way. Now, I know that there's all kinds of things that we could talk about when we want to promote unity. We could talk about many, many things. When we get adopted into the family of God, there is no doubt that we will have different opinions, different viewpoints. Some could be positive and some could be negative. When we we have challenges as as we live out our lives together, we will misunderstand one another. We will offend each other in minor ways and moderate ways and sometimes more serious ways. We'll have to overlook a multitude of minor offenses, as God does. There will be the need to reconcile with one another, and there's a host of things that happen in reconciliation. We'll come into contact with ourselves, and we'll be asking whether we use fight techniques or flight techniques, or are we actually going to use God's Word to help us biblically work through things in a healthy way and restore peace. There can be personal issues. We offend one another personally, or there's material issues. Maybe there's money involved or property that's damaged. But the very thing that needs to be retained all throughout these things is that you think well of your brothers and sisters, as Paul does. And so this is not just positive thinking. This is aligning your thoughts with reality. It, it, you know, it, it just won't do to say, you know, Paul is kind of a glass half full guy and not a glass half empty guy. Paul, he knew conflict well, and he was not known for sidestepping it. It it deeply disturbed him, and he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, either if the conflict involved him personally or the church. And and so Paul is not saying that we don't recognize the empty part of the glass. But Christians can't look at the empty part without looking at the full part. Christians are whole glass people. We are not allowed to look at the empty part without looking at the full part. And so when we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to remember who they are in Christ. We need to think of them that that way, talk, talk about them that way, and act towards them that way. And it is highly important to remember that we are already in unity. Christ established it. So when we look at our text today, Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is, it's a command to actually maintain what Christ has already established. And the unity that we have derives from the bond we mutually share in Christ. Paul makes it explicitly clear in his letter to the Ephesians by saying that God reconciled people people from all nations, that is both Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross. Our mutual bond is a result of Christ making us into something that breaks down the hostility. We are in unity. And to drive this home, Paul says, just after our text in Ephesians, he says, there is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is what we have.